Good morning, everybody. How are you doing today? So glad to, to see you all here. And um, I know Stephanie just mentioned giving. Um, I do want to bring up one thing. We, I talked about it last week, something we've done uh, for the past few years here at church. The Sunday after Thanksgiving, we're going to receive what we call the harvest offering. And this is the one special offering we receive each year. And this offering doesn't stay in-house. It goes out to missionaries. Uh, it goes out into the community. It's an offering that goes you know, nationally and internationally. And I love that over the past couple of years, we've done upwards of $30,000 that we've been able to give to missionary support, uh, people in our community that have needed help. We've been able to help school projects and other people, even in the church, with, with things that have come up in life. And it's, it's such a blessing and joy that we have the ability to give to others at times. And so as we get closer to, to that Sunday for our harvest offering, would you join me in prayer and just pray, how, what's something that we can give up individually and sacrifice for this offering? This is, this is not meant to replace a tithe or offering. This is meant to be something above and beyond where we say, hey, maybe for the next few weeks, whatever we spend on coffee or eating out, we won't do that. We'll give that to the harvest offering instead. And I know that when that comes in, man, God multiplies that. And I'm just amazed every year when I get the report on what we received and how we can be a blessing to the people around us and the people that they may never even see us or visit us physically, but we get to have an impact in their ministry worldwide because we're just giving and being a part of what God's doing around the world. I'm excited for that, so pray for that as we get ready for it. And then last thing before we dive in, how many of you were here in any way, shape, or form for Trunk or Treat yesterday? And that was, that was so much fun. So as you look up here, we had a lot of people on campus. This is our fourth time doing it. Every year it gets bigger and bigger. And I know we easily had over 500 people cruising through our campus yesterday. And there was a taco truck. The cars were great. It was so much fun. And I do want to give a huge shout out. Um, first and foremost, Ashley. Ashley spearheaded the whole event. And so she did a phenomenal job. But I know that Ashley uh, didn't do it alone. She spearheaded a lot, put a lot of work into it. But for everyone here who had anything to do with trunk or treat, whether you were serving food, setting up, cleaning up, decorating a trunk, um, just there, were, there was so many things that happened here. The team put on a clinic of service, and it was so fun to, to be able to come here and just see people doing serving and serving joyfully and having a great time. So thank you so much to everyone who had a part to play in Trunk or Treat. Can't wait to, uh, to do it again next year. And we got a lot of good reviews of people saying it was one of the best they'd been to so far this year. So thank you to everyone. It was a lot of fun. Turn to, to Jonah chapter one. We, we started a new series last week called um, The Second Chance God. And I'm excited to dive into what really happened in the book of Jonah? Last week, we did a flyby over the whole book, the main themes of the book. Um, we, we talked about how it started, kind of how it ended, but now we're gonna, really going to break apart each chapter. So, so Jonah chapter 1, there, there's some big overarching takeaways in chapter 1, and, and I love that so much happens in just four short chapters in this book. Chapter 1, we're actually going to split up into a couple weeks because there's a lot to get from here. But as we dive in, I would like everyone to think, what is the worst storm you've ever been in. The worst storm you've ever been in. Now, I know I'm going to share a story about a storm, but it's from when I lived in California, and you guys are just going to laugh at me. But, but it was a scary, scary storm I'd been in. So in California, it did rain. Very rarely, but it did rain. And there was, there was a Sunday morning where on the way, to, the, on the way to, to church, Creekside, where I worked, it literally looked like sheets of water just pouring down. I had never quite been in a storm that intense. The wind was blowing, the water was coming down. Um, it was 
uh, myself and, and Stephanie, Avery did not exist yet. It was a long time ago, but she was out of town with Aurora, so it was just me. I'm driving to church, and I remember thinking, I've never quite seen a storm like this. Water's flooding across the street, and it was pretty insane. We, I, get, I get to Creekside, and we're starting to set up children's ministry. And the way Creekside was designed is it had a big building in the middle, kind of like a U-shaped courtyard around it, classrooms on the sides, just to kind of give you a visual of what it is. And so we, we had an overhang. We're like, all right, we're going to set up the children's ministry check-in. We've got to set it up under the overhang because water is just pouring down like crazy. And then as, as we're going, there, there was, uh, like I said, courtyards on each side. There were water drains, so the water's flowing down into the courtyards. However, the church was named Creekside for a reason. There was a creek close by. And this creek, actually, when they were building the church, they had to divert the creek because it was running under the foundation of where they wanted to build. So part of the creek did still run under the church, and we were about to see this firsthand. We're setting this up, and we noticed the water in the courtyards getting a little, little higher. We're like, wow, it's like kind of you know, splashing around out here. My friend Mark, a good friend of mine, if you've been on the Mexico team, you know Mark. He tells me, he goes, hey, Dustin, when did we order a fountain? I'm just thinking, like, what are you talking about? When did we order a fountain? And he's over in the courtyard. He goes, the fountain. So I walk over, and in Creekside did indeed have a fountain. Check out this picture. That was our drain in the courtyard. And for a few minutes, a few minutes, it felt like minutes. I mean, we're sitting there just looking at it, kind of like, not really knowing what to do. And then we noticed the water level rising in the courtyard. Then it turned into panic. Creekside was flooding. There was no exit for that. That was the creek had clogged up because of the crazy the rain, and it was now finding the nearest exit, our drain. So it started getting higher. The water got about shin high. We're sloshing through. We realized the electrical cords are plugged into the outlets. That water's coming up to the outlet. So you know, panic is now setting in. The, the, we called it the green room at the church. is actually the, the door right in the very back over there, just around the corner. It's where all the music and worship team kept all their equipment, and a lot of it was sitting on the carpet on the ground. Water starting to seep in. It was crazy. Me and all of my amazing smartness with electricity run over and just start with my bare hands unplugging cords from the outlets as water's coming up to them. And Jesus obviously is not done with me yet because nothing happened. But it's one of those like, Shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't be standing here holding this in the water. You know, all these things going through your head. So it turned into panic. But then people started getting sandbags. We had to start putting them against the doors. Water was flooding in. Pastor Terry, the driveway to get into the church, we actually put cones off because it was flooding. And Pastor Terry, was it's funny now, but he remembers he was driving in. And we're trying to tell him not to pull into the driveway because it was flooded. And he goes, why are these cones here? Water comes over the, with a hood of his car. It was an insane morning. And then, of course, all of a sudden, the sky shows up. The rain stops. The flood was still coming up out of the courtyard. But it was amazing to see how many people shifted in that moment. People started doing what we needed to do to make service happen. We had what we called Creekside Unplugged that day. There was no power going on in the building. It was our worship pastor, someone on the, the Cajon acoustic set. Pastor Terry was just talking without a mic. Children's ministry, every, no, no technology because everything was powered off because we were all afraid of what was going to happen. But something else happened as well. We found leaks in the church. We went into a couple of the kids' classrooms like, oh, that bubble wasn't in the ceiling yesterday. You know, all these things you start finding. The storm had disrupted everything. Now, I remember church ended. 
things were all right. You know, the water eventually started draining again. And then I start driving home and I realize, if there's a leak in my house, I'm doomed. I'm going to get home and I'm going to find just a lake inside. So I get home and that was the longest 10-minute drive of my life. Driving down the freeway, I get home, I open the door and everything's fine. I was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Everything was good. But man, we had repairs to do at the church. Drywall was no longer drywall. The carpet was ruined. There was so much stuff that happened. Now, storms have the ability to expose things that we never see coming. You don't know you have a leak until the water hits the leak. You don't know something's wrong until the storm finds it. it can, they can disrupt so much of a flow in our lives, and they can cause things to shift, but it's not always a bad thing. When I, when I look back at that moment, we remember, the, obviously, the, the drain and the water and everything, but I also remember so many people who weren't even serving regularly at the church, people that were just there that were like, what can we do? How can we help? And everyone coming together to make sure we could fix the problems as fast as we could. And so what turned into a moment where we could see great disaster turned into a huge moment of unity in the church. And it was really, really awesome to see. We were able to shift and refocus, and, and we saw the exposed flaws, and then we had a plan to fix them. Or... We realized if we chose not to flick some, what was going to happen next time it rained? Didn't matter that it was going to rain five years later, because that's what happens in California. But we knew that if it rained again, we would be setting ourselves up for failure if we didn't address the problem. If we didn't say the storm showed us this, this is now what we have to do. Keep, keep that in mind as we navigate through uh, the story of Jonah, because we're going to find some metaphorical storms and a very literal storm that Jonah finds himself in today. So Jonah chapter 1 I'm going to pray for us, and we're actually going to read the whole chapter, chapter one, together, and then start breaking apart what we learned from this. So let's pray. God, I thank you so much for today. I thank you that, uh, God, you work so many miracles in our lives, and even when storms come and, and we see things falling apart, you have the ability to show healing, restoration, bring unity, and, and God, I, I thank you that you allow us to see the flaws sometimes so that you can do an amazing work. God, I pray today as we dive into this that you speak to us and you allow us to address storms in our lives as we turn our focus and love to you as you handle these for us and work with us in these situations. We thank you, love you, and everybody said, amen. amen. All right, so Jonah chapter one, here we go. It says this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amadi, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then Jonah sent a great wind at the sea. Such a violent storm rose up that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What did you do? What do you do where you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he had told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? 
Pick me up and throw me in the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that this is my fault and the great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Please do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. That's just chapter one. That's, that's a lot. Now, now there, there's a lot going on here, and a lot that we see Jonah doing or not doing, and even the people on the boat doing and not doing. It, it's, in, it's insane, all the stuff that happens in just this first short chapter. But in our, in our introduction to Jonah last week, we, we talked about the Assyrians, right? Their, their scare tactics, their war tactics, the people of Nineveh, and the, the, what happened in the neighboring communities that they went to war. This was a bloodthirsty people. Nineveh was not nice. And, and their, their tactics are so bad that this gets God's attention. Their, their reputation has God's attention. And he says, Jonah, go preach to them because of their wickedness. This is a bad city, and I'm going to wipe them out. And so Jonah hears this message and he runs. He says no. And that sparks the rest of what happens in this, in this book, right? And at first thought, we talked about last week, we think Jonah may be afraid of these people, afraid of what they may, may say, afraid of what they may do. He didn't want to be the next skull on the road or the next body hanging up on the wall of someone who opposed Nineveh. So at first thought, we assume Jonah's scared, really, really scared to do this, facing a very real threat to his life. But as we see when we get to the context of Jonah as a prophet, of Jonah and what he knows about God, what he knows God will do, we see he's not just facing a fear of Nineveh, it's his knowledge of the grace of God that he really was like this Hebrew hypocrite that did not want God's grace to extend to people who he didn't feel deserved it. They didn't deserve to be redeemed. They didn't deserve to be saved. He had hatred in his heart for these people. He knew, if I go and preach God's message, they will respond. They will respond because this is, what, this is what God wants. He wants to see their hearts change. And he was convinced of this, but he didn't want it. So what was the issue? What was Jonah's issue? His issue was he didn't want them to know grace. And I think that's a big thing we can pull from the first part of this chapter. He didn't want grace. He wanted judgment. More than anything, Jonah wanted judgment. I think all too often we can so fall into this category of, of seeing people who deserve judgment. You say, look at what they're doing in life. They do not deserve the grace of God. They deserve the wrath of God. And so Jonah's on this, the same boat right now. He says he's so full of disdain and hatred for Nineveh, he says no and runs. We get there so much in our lives where, where God can say, extend grace to this person, and we can say no and go the other way. We don't think they deserve it. I know for, for the teens, you guys in school, how many people do you know in school how you would say, you know what, that person in school, I just want them to fail at everything so miserably they do not deserve to succeed. We can easily fall into that. I, I believe this is a timely word even for the church today. Um, 
Every year, I attend what's called the Willow Creek Leadership Summit. And it's a, Willow Creek is a huge church in Chicago. It used to be pastored by a man named Bill Hybels. And he, had, uh, he did this, what he called the Leadership Summit. He invited Christian speakers, non-Christian speakers, and it was this huge seminar. It's, it goes on for a couple days, and it's all about inspiring leaders to be better leaders. How can leaders lead people in a way where everybody wins, and how can we all get better? And it's a great summit. And I don't go to Chicago every year, but I get to simulcast and watch it every year. Year. Now, there was one year where Pastor Bill Hybels talked about how he had a personal relationship with the President of the United States. And the President actually referred to this man, Bill, as his pastor. And so the President had recently finished his term seven months prior to the summit, and Pastor Bill asked him if he would come speak at the summit, if he'd speak and be able to share about his leadership and his overcoming failure, overcoming failures that he did when he was a president and in life. Now, the pastor was convinced of the president's faith in Jesus. And at previous leadership summits, he'd often, like I said, had non-Christians come in. So this was someone he thought, hey, this will be a great thing for leaders to hear. How did this president do in this time? But he was surprised at the backlash he got. I'll never forget hearing uh, Bill Hybels talk about the responses he had when they found out that he invited former president Bill Clinton to speak at the summit. Clinton accepted the invitation, but before his arrival, people all around the country emailed they were emailing, they were snamming, they were protesting in front of the church. How dare you invite this man to speak? He said people would call, they'd, come, they'd scream horrendous insults at his staff, shamelessly admitting that they hated that president. They hated with a passion. And they would even say, <laughs> Pastor Bill says this, I heard people say, I hope he rots in hell. Uh, the pastor told about an email he received stating the man's unashamed, unapologetic, intense hatred for the former president, and he even signed it, Reverend, Bill never said the guy's name, but the point was this email, this letter, came from another pastor talking about his intense hatred for President Clinton. Whether or not you agree with Clinton and what he did when he was president is not the point of the story. The point is, when I hear stories like this, what goes through my mind is, when did Jesus change the rule on hate? When, 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 did, when, did the, when were we told it's okay to hate people who you disagree with? When were we told it's okay if people have different viewpoint than your different lifestyle than you, that we get to pass so much judgment on them that we say things like, I hope you die, I hope you rot in hell. When, when did that become okay for us? I'm not saying everybody does that, but that is, that's a, a cultural thing that people fall into all the time. And, and so many times people will, even Christ's followers will say, I don't agree with you. I hate what you stand for. And therefore I hate you. Man, this, I think this is such a contradictory to what, so contradictory to what the Bible tells us. I mean, I, I think when, when I heard that this pastor had writ, written this letter to Pastor Bill and signed it, I think, man, did, did this pastor get an addended Bible that I didn't get? Are there new footnotes somewhere that I missed saying, oh, it's okay to do this instead, though, right? I thought the command of Jesus as a Christ follower was hatred's not allowed. It's not allowed. We've got to show love. The command of Jesus was we've got to love our enemies, extend grace 70 times 7. Keep on going. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. This principle goes unilaterally across the board. This applies to, to politics, it applies to ethnicity, it applies to different countries, it applies to the LGBT community, it applies to everyone. Friends, God looks at this commandment as a holistic look. 
You do not have to agree with all those people, people that differentiate from you. It's not saying agree with everything, but it is saying in all things, we will love each other. We can show the love of Jesus without agreeing with a contradictory lifestyle. In fact, the Bible teaches us to respect those we greatly disagree with or have deeply disappointed us. Think about that. The Bible teaches we can greatly have respect for people who we greatly disagree with or even those who have deeply disappointed us. And I've shared before, if you stick around church long enough, I'm going to fall into that category where you're going to disagree with me on something. I'm going to disappoint you in some way, shape, or form. Chances are I'm not doing it on purpose. I don't wake up and go, how can I disappoint people today? But it's going to happen in some way. And I, I don't know... Where or when we as a large group, as a, the, the capital C church, the capital C Christ followers as a group sometimes, we, we go down that road though of saying, I just, I don't, I don't care about those people. I just want that, I want them to burn. I want what they're doing to burn. I just, I hate everything about them to where I hate them. But we forget this fact, every person matters to God. Every person matters to God. As a matter of fact, we have to learn how to disagree agreeably. We have to learn how to disagree agreeably. It's, it's not a stretch to say that, that we live in unprecedented times since COVID. I felt like we were in unprecedented times before COVID. COVID just amplified a lot of things for us. And even coming out of it, things are still shifting. Things are still changing because the world was rocked. But there's a lot at stake in the world. There, there's, the, the stakes are so big that what Jesus did for us so many thousands of years ago is still relevant today. He still is here for us today. And it's not about violating your conscience or condoning things people do. It's the fact that love is supposed to be our calling card. Love is the mark of Christ in our lives. And that's what we need to show everybody else, regardless of where they stand, regardless of how contradictory it is to us. That's the mark that we show to others, that Jesus loves us, and in turn, we love them. I've never seen such crazy, hard language as I do in the political season. I know that we have, uh, we have elections coming up, and we have some local elections coming up now, and next year we're gonna have our presidential election. And already there, there's attacks and people saying Biden this or Biden that. There's Trump this or Trump that. Who knows who's gonna run? But I know that when this season comes up, the attacking gets worse and worse. And I know that from the time I was a kid to the time I am now, every year I feel like I'm saying, man, that was the worst one ever until the next election. And then the next round of voting. It just gets worse and worse because language comes. And the, the thing that really honestly hurts my heart is when I see Christ followers posting and attacking and assaulting people. And, it, and then, then you see Christ followers going against Christ followers. And it's just, it's like, wow, the, the, the hate gets so deep. When did our message shift from let's show people who Jesus is by hating who they are and what they do instead of let's show people who Jesus is by loving them no matter what they say or do? And I know that as we get closer to election time, my heart gets heavy. And I know that as a church, as a, as a, as a Christian community, Christ-following people, we need to pray for our hearts. We need to pray for our nation. We need to start there and make sure we're praying for people. It's, it's not a good place to be when any, at any point in your life, if you say, I hate these people, I hate this person, that's never a good place to be. That doesn't do you any good to hate. Doesn't do them any good. Doesn't do you any good. It reveals trouble in your heart, I believe. It reveals trouble in your spirit. And that's what we see happening so much with Jonah in chapter one. He hates them so deeply, it's causing him to abandon what God has called him to do. He's letting his hatred rule his life instead of letting God rule his life. 
Ultimately, when we hate people or things, this produces an ugly character. It produces um, a sour relationship with God. Jonah's issue took him some bad places, and that happens to us today too. What, what this is, this is sin disobedience. And when we're disobedient because of our sin, something happens. Your sin disobedience will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it'll cost you more than you want to pay. Take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. In Jonah 1, uh, chapter, chapter 1, verse 4, God sends us great wind, right? This major sea is crushing, this, this, causing this major storm, so much so that it gets worse and worse. And I love that it says the boat was threatened to get break apart. And I think three times after that, it still says, and it got worse, and it got worse. Can you imagine the terror these people are feeling while Jonah is trying to sleep away his problems? Literally terrified. The question then is asked, was this a natural disaster or was this supernatural discipline? Because I think there's a difference between those. This wasn't just a natural disaster. This was God showing that he was bringing Jonah back through this supernatural discipline. And I think maybe today you can feel like you're being, being blown and, and just tossed around by a storm. But not all storms in life are caused by rebellion, running, or sin. I really think there's two kinds of storms when God steps in. The first kind that we see is we see a perfecting storm. We, we, can, we can see, we see the, the disciples on the water as Christ sends them. He sends us into storms sometimes. Jesus sent his disciples out before he walked them. This was a perfecting moment for where they could see him walking on water. They could see his perfection, his glory in, in a first hand when he got to tell the storm to calm down. In these perfecting storms, we get to be taught some things about God. We see his power. We see his care. We see his oversight. We can allow things in our lives to show us his life and his perfecting ways to bring us into maturity. Sometimes when we have these perfecting storms, these, these, are, not, these, these are not to bring us down, but, but to build us up in our view of him. Um, living in California, there's a place in Monterey and Pacific Grove. It's called 17 Mile Drive, and uh, it is a beautiful drive. When you drive through this, you get to see all these cypress trees that are huge and overgrown. But what happens on this drive is it gets really, really windy, and it's been that way forever. And so what happens is these trees that have grown there, you see the wind twisting and contorting the branches. But what happens is it's really cool and beautiful. You see these trees that are twisted and warped up, and it's, it's awesome. It's such a sight to see. They're made beautiful by the winds. They're made stronger than the winds because when trees grow there, the winds are so strong, it causes the roots to go deeper. And those trees look like there's no way that tree should be able at that angle to stay where it is. But the roots go so deep because of the storms and the winds. Sometimes in our life, a storm may come and it's not meant to break you. It's meant to have you grow stronger. It's meant for you to grab a firm, a deeper grab on what God is doing in your life. Sometimes we're sent into a storm to shape, establish those roots, get some deeper faith in Christ and belief in God and what he's doing there. And those are these perfecting storms. And when these storms come, we need to know this. Real maturity isn't that we understand everything. Real maturity is that we'll trust God even when we don't. When those storms come, you may not know why. We may not know what's going on, but knowing we're going to grow in Jesus through those storms is one of the biggest things we can get from it. You may not know everything. It's okay. But God will reveal some amazing things to you. And the other time, like what we see here in Jonah, this is a correcting storm. This is, this is when maybe our lives are off track. We make wrong decisions. I mean, we, we've all made the wrong decision. We've all done things at times that we know was not the right thing to do. And that's when the correcting storm comes in. 
You're making decisions, right? You're doing what you want to do, where you want to go. This is what Jonah's doing. He says, you know, God, you want me to do this? I'm going to go the other way. So what does God do? God sends a correcting storm. And in storms in our lives, when, when this happens, when God sends these in, he's doing it not out of spite, not out of punishment. God was not doing it to try and kill Jonah. He was doing it because he loved Jonah. He was doing it to bring it back. These correcting storms, it's when he wants to guide us back to where he wants you and to do what he wants to do through your life. It's a moment for you to shift back to him. And these storms usually come due to sin or rebellion, the decisions we have made to pull us off track. When we face the discipline of God, which is what's happening to Jonah here, God is taking a very active role, very hands-on approach to saying, Jonah, you're not doing what I want you to do. I'm going to bring you back. He doesn't sit back and, and just wait. He says, I'm going to be active in Jew, Jonah, coming back to do what I want you to do. He's involved. He's engaged. And it's not punishment. It's to bring redemption to Jonah. We see this supernatural discipline in a natural circumstance. And, and when we look at this, when we, when we see these storms more of the corrective storms, what happens then is we shift our, our view on God in a good way. Because what I don't want us to do is when we go through things in our lives, it's one thing to look at God and say, man, God, you're just ticked off and angry and you're punishing me. It's another to shift and say, all right, God, this is not just, this is not just a punishment. This is discipline to bring me back. Just like when, when we have kids and our kids do something, you know, they say they didn't eat that cookie and there's chocolate all over their face, you know, they ate the cookie. There's going to be a consequence. But it's not just to usher punishment or, or to be mean to the kids. It's, you know, we, we have consequences because we want them to learn right. We want them to learn wrong. We want them to learn honesty versus dishonesty. There's lessons that we know that they need as they grow up. I think God does the same thing to us. There are discipline and consequences that come in. And it's not to punish or spite. It's to bring you back to help us grow, to help us learn and understand. We gotta make sure we see God as our parent bringing us back in. Sometimes we think, well, you know, if I, if I just say a prayer, everything will change. And I once heard someone say, you can't just pray your way out of what you behaved yourself into. You can't just pray your way out of what you behaved yourself into. And what they were saying was it takes more than that. It takes repentance. It takes action after your prayer to make sure you're going back to God. Is prayer a part of that process? Absolutely. Don't, don't, hear, don't leave here and go, Pastor Dustin just said don't pray. It's not going to work. Not saying that. What I'm saying is when we pray, when we're doing something in life and we're turning to God, we say, all right, God, here's what's going on. I'm going to pray for what I've been doing. I'm going to pray for your guidance. Then we do something about it. Physically make that change. Make that alteration. Repentance literally means to turn the other way. So let our actions mirror what our words just said. Let's, let's take our steps after what we pray, showing that we believe and trust in what God is doing. In Jonah verse 5, the storm is such that these salty, seasoned sailors of the sea, they are feel fearful for their lives. They are in sheer panic mode. Cargo's going off. They're calling on their own gods, and nothing is happening. And, and here we see the, the futility of man when God is at work. They start jettisoning the cargo, straining the oars. They take matters into their own hands. And how many times do we do that? We say, God is doing something in our lives, and we say, no, I'm still going to fix this. I am still in charge. I'm going to get myself out of this problem. Instead of finally getting to the moment where we say, God, I need you to help me out of this. I need to turn to you. But man, this is a clear picture of these people. It says calling on their own gods. They were still running from God. They weren't looking to him. And Jonah, during all this, goes into sleep therapy mode. He goes into nap time. Avoid pain, avoid problems. 
I'm not going to run to God. I'm just going to ignore what's happening. And we see as we read, he clearly knows what's happening. But he says, I'm going to go sleep. I'm just going to hide, and maybe this will just go away. But then we see things get from bad to worse. Running didn't help. Hiding didn't help. Taking it into your own hands, it didn't help. All the self-effort, the sleep avoidance does not effectively get to the fix that God was putting in there to fix Jonah. We see the story continue in verses 6 and 7. They start casting lots. You know, they start basically their version of gambling. And what does this fall onto? And it falls onto Jonah. I can imagine Jonah going, oh, great, God, thanks. He's called me out. I'm trying to take a nap and hide, and they're gambling. Whose fault is this? And it's still pointing to Jonah. Right? God's not letting him get out of this. All signs point to what he's doing. Again, we see God uh, commandering this process, exposing Jonah. Again, not to just call him out and be spiteful, but it's all part of bringing him back. It may look a bit controlling, but I really feel that when we read this whole story, we see it's motivated by love, not control. Some of us today here, we, we may be facing a personal Nineveh in our lives. That there's someone we need to reach out to, someone to forgive. Maybe there's a painful experience or emotion that we need to face, but we've been running. We've been running and saying, I, I don't want to be hands-on with this. I, I don't want to do what I know I'm supposed to do. Because it's hard to put aside prejudice. It's hard to put aside anger. It's hard to put aside fear and bring that to God and say, God, work on my heart. God, show me how to lovingly confront someone. God, show me how to lovingly forgive someone. It's not easy. But we see Jonah having to start looking at his own heart in this moment. In verses 8 and 9, the, the, the storm they figured had to be of divine origin. They knew this was not natural. There was God at work. And then Jonah comes clean. He says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord of heaven. This is a confused man. Here he is now telling them, I'm confessed. I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord of heaven. But his actions are not backing up what he just said. His actions, what he's saying is, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. Those words mean I'm going, I do what God tells me to do. But he clearly, in this moment, is doing the opposite of what God told him to do. So he, Jonah's in this, now, now it's like an identity crisis, right? I was running, now this is happening. I don't even know what's going on anymore and what I'm supposed to be doing. I mean, he, he knows, but he's just having this moment of panic and confusion. Jonah is speaking truth, but he's living this untruth. And so why does Jonah tell? Why does he reveal this to the people? Why does he reveal that he's living in his rebellion and, and revealing his disobedience to the, the people on the boat? It's probably shame. Say, sin, shame from sin is really hard to hide. Really hard to hide. It usually comes out in some way, shape, or form. If you're sinning, and it, it, it always comes out. People say, we know this phrase, the truth will out. The truth comes out. You can go before your sin or your sin can catch up to you. It eventually will always come out. Jonah finally tells them, it's my fault. This is why this is happening, because I'm here. But what happens is this will break you up unless you confront it. Verses 10 to 13, the storm is still getting rougher. God is still trying to bend Jonah's heart to show him and point him back to him. And then we see verses 14 and 16, things are looking better for the sailors. They finally throw Jonah overboard. The, thing, the storm comes down. And I love that part in the story where it says, then the sailors started praising God. In just a few verses, they go from, from crying out to their false gods to praising God. I love how God is even able to turn the sailors towards him, and it's Jonah's fault that they're in this mess in the first place, right? It's like God took Jonah's stick and said, hey, you're still going to run? I'm still going to get people to follow me in the midst of your running. And God's at work in an amazing way here. But things are about to get worse for Jonah. 
Jonah now enters into the belly of a giant fish. And that's where chapter one ends. And, and this, is, this is a lot. There's a whole lot going on here. And I think there's a few principles that we can get to know when we are running from or resisting God. When, when we run or resist God's word, everyone needs to know this. It will be a difficult path. It will be a very, very difficult path. Jonah 1.3 says, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship was about to be broken up. You wonder, as you read this story, was it worth it to Jonah? Was, was it really worth it? I mean, couldn't it have been easier to just say, all right, God, you said do this, I will now do this. I mean, we would have missed out on a really great, great book in the Bible, right? But, but at the same time, would it have been easier to just follow what God said rather than run and get put on a boat, put in a storm, and have this, um, this incredibly scary situation happen? Truth is, yeah, it, it could have been easier, but we also need to know this. God's way is not always easy. God's way is not always going to be easy. Will it be more fulfilling? Yes. Will it be the best? Yes. Will it be the most rewarding? Yes. Will it be the easiest? Not always. Not always. I think the issue for many is the convictions they've once lived become a matter of convenience. Right? Jonah had convictions, but then he started to live in this matter of convenience. It was easier to just hate Nineveh than it was to go there and confront it. Jonah went from a prophet proclaiming God to running from the purposes of God, and all that did was cause some massive problems. Proverbs 14, 12, and 13 from the Message Translation says this, There's a way of life that looks harmless enough. Look again, it leads straight to hell. Sure, those people appear to be having a good time, but all that laughter will end in heartbreak. Friends, we, we were never, ever meant to live apart from the wisdom or the knowledge or the steps of God. We were never meant to live apart from that. that we, we need to have this, this, this heart that races towards him. We were never meant to live independently away from him without the moral compass of our life that always points due north, and that is directly to Jesus. I think the, the reason that so many of us at times can live this life of confusion or, or not knowing what's going on, feeling like something is missing, or we can be, feel like there's a storm just blowing us left and right, is because we're living a life that's resisting what God wants. We're not, we're not following him, and we're doing our own thing. Or maybe we're running from him, and it's shifting what we know our call is, it's shifted us away. It can be hard. Second is it can bring difficulty to others. Think of the, the sailors in the story, right? They, they, they're, they're only here in the middle of this because of what Jonah is doing. They were in sheer panic. They lost a lot of their cargo because of Jonah's disobedience, right? In 1, 7, uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 7, it says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for sure who caused this trouble who has come upon us. The sailors suffered. And what's even crazier is Nineveh would have suffered if Jonah still disobeyed and didn't go. In, in times of our running and rebellion, I think it's, it's something that we need to be aware of that our decisions affect those around us. Our decisions and our rebellion absolutely affect those around us. It's, it's uh, easy to think that, that they won't. It's easy to think that if we do something, I'm isolated, I'm by myself, there's not gonna be a ripple effect, I'm just gonna do this for me and it will leave everyone else Everyone will be fine. But the truth is, we were created as relational creatures. We were created to be in community. And when we do something contrary to the word of God, it does affect people around us. When we run or rebel, people in our relationship orbit can suffer from our wake of consequences and our storm of disobedience. 
And it's easy to see it in some of the big things, right? When, someone, when, when a couple or a mom and a dad get divorced, so many times I can hear, the kids will be fine. They're young, they'll grow through it. Kids typically are not fine. It hurts. As a kid who went through parents getting divorced at a young age, I still have memories of the divorce. It was a lot for me to get over. It actually caused conversations with my wife and I as we were planning our marriage because there were insecurities I had about getting married because of what I saw happen to my parents. It hurts. When a spouse has an affair, it's not just, he's on the run, he's listening to the message. (laughs) When a spouse has an affair, it's not just a husband and wife that get hurt. Whole communities get hurt. Friendships are divided. Families are divided. When someone makes financial indiscretions, it can cause businesses to collapse. Things happen. The the things that we run from, the way that we rebel, when we go anti what God says, it causes hardships for other people as well. Our actions can have repercussions. How many times has your life been hurt because maybe someone in your family turned to alcoholism? It doesn't just affect the one person. It hurts the family. Someone here today can be on one side of the street doing really, really good, and someone else today can be on the other side of the street, and they're hurting. But what I think we need to understand is when we see someone hurting, it hurts us too. That's part of being a family, part of being the body of God, right? Watching someone you love resist, watching someone you love run or or reject of God and his purpose, it hurts because it affects us as a family as well. It's a painful place to be, but I love that as a church family, we get the opportunity to help bring people back in. We get the opportunity to show love and grace and help people, maybe if they're on the run. Maybe today you're on the run. Know that you've got a family here that wants to help bring you back, and you've got a God that's running after you as well. And third, never forget Jonah's final cry here. When you're running from God, drowning may become preferable. So true. Drowning may become preferable. We get to this place in Jonah where verses 12 and 13 he talks about. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Did Jonah know a fish was going to swallow him and, and eventually save him? No. He was saying, throw me in so I can drown. You'll be safe. He was calling it in. He was done. He would rather drown than face God. Basically, sometimes we can feel like drowning is our preferable reality because we've run so much. We have consequences that are so big that have engulfed us, those around us. We say, I'm done. Or you come to a place where you realize you're sinking faster than you can swim. No matter what you do, you just cannot get out of the hole that you are in now. You're struggling to keep your nose above that water line. You're gasping for air. Well, just know that sometimes in those moments, the more you work, if it's not working back to God, the more you're going to sink the harder and harder it's going to be. Jonah thinks this, chapter one, my story is over. Throw me in the water, I'm out. But God has such a different vantage point. God's up there and God gets to see the whole picture and he knows Jonah's thinking he's done, I'm going to save him. It may not look like being saved, knowing that this giant fish is about to eat you, but this is all part of God bringing Jonah back. And now Jonah is literally at the bottom, the belly of a fish. He's at the end powerless. The only place now he can go is to look up because there's no way out unless God does it. But this is what God does to get him back on this path of restoration into his original purpose that he had called him to do in the beginning when he said, go to Nineveh. I've talked with people and, and, and they've said, I'm not sure I can, or do I really want to surrender to go all into Jesus? I had this talk a lot with, with uh, teens when I was a youth pastor. Like, I'm not sure if I really want to do this. And I would ask students, I'd say, say, why? Why would you not want to give your life to Jesus? And one thing they said to me was, it sounds boring. 
it's, yeah, you laugh because you know. It sounds boring. Well, let me tell you this. If you decide to follow God's way and do everything he tells you to do, there's a good chance your life will not be boring. There's going to be amazing things he calls you to do, things you never thought you were capable of doing, things you never thought you would ever, ever do in your life, and it will not be boring. I have never met anybody that has said, man, I decided to follow God every day, and what a boring life I've had. I've never met that person. I've also never met someone who said, God made me do this, and what a disappointment my life has now turned out to be. I've never met those people. So my question for for everybody here is, as we go through Jonah chapter one, do I want what God wants? Will I do it God's way? Do you believe God's way is the best? Do you believe his love is for everyone? And I hope the answer is yes, because the best place I know is to make a decision to follow God, trust it, and give your all to go for it. I'd like to um, invite the worship team up as we come to a close this morning. Uh, this season for me, due to everything going on in the world, I think it's, it's time for, for me as a person, it's time for us as a church, it's time for Christ followers in general to ramp up. How do we love each other? How do we show the world that we love the world? How do we show the world Jesus loves them? Because that's what it all comes down to. It, it's refreshing to understand God's love for me. And it's easy to get bogged down in the day-to-day routine of, of work and business and life. But I, I know at this time for me, as we, as we come into like the Thanksgiving season, it's like, all right, God, what am I thankful for? I'm thankful for my family. God, I'm thankful that you love me. And I'm thankful that I have an opportunity to share that love with people. So thankful that I get to run to you, God, and not from you. I know I don't want to run from Jesus, but to him. And live out of one of my favorite verses. Psalms 119.32 says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Man, I love following Jesus, and I love that we have great freedom in that. And when we run to him, we get to run out of our storms. And we get to see his perfect hand the whole time. Would you stand with me today? Today, maybe you, you feel the Lord speaking to you. you maybe, you've, maybe you've never given your life to Christ before. Maybe you've, you've, you've lived your whole life on this run away from him, maybe not even realizing you're running from him because you've never thought about it. But maybe today you're feeling like, hey, I want to run to Jesus. Maybe you've never opened that door before, nor know that when you open that door, he's already there knocking. He is already there saying, I'm ready. I want to meet with you. Or maybe you're like the sailors. Maybe someone you love or care about is running from God and you feel the backlash and pain. You, you feel like you're in the midst of their problems and it's causing you a great deal of angst. Never forget, God is at work. God is always at work and God is always on time. Maybe you need to extend grace and love and forgiveness to somebody today. Maybe you need to show someone the grace that God has shared with you. Wherever you are today, know that God is there and you don't have to wait. Do it. Talk to him, extend your life to him, extend, just reach out to him knowing that he is already there reaching out for you. I am so thankful that we have the God of the second chance and we always have another chance to turn back to him. In the midst of our running, he's always there, amen? God, I thank you so much for today. I thank you that, that your love is so much bigger than our hate. God, I thank you that that you can outrun us in everything we do. God, when we run, you are right there. I thank you for the storms that you put in our lives to bring us back to you. And I pray that whatever people are going through today, God, whatever storm they may be in, God, that they, they see that you are there perfecting them. You're correcting them. You're correcting us to bring us back to you. 
God, I pray that this season marks the point where we go all in on our, our love for you and our love for our community and people, God, and we, we help people turn to you and they get to experience the God of the second chance. We thank you, loving everybody said.